Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the International History Annual Lecture. Welcome to the LSE. If you're not from the LSE, pleased that the cheap seats are getting filled up as, as well up there. It's an enormous pleasure to welcome Professor Dominic Lieben. Uh, he's told me not to say too much, just to get on with it, really, so I won't say too much. I'll say the thing I normally forget, which is, is that the Twitter hashtag is at LSE. Russia? It says in my notes, it says here that um, Jai is a senior research fellow at Trinity College, Cambridge, but I don't actually think any of us believe that. We think he's one of ours at the LSE. He came to the LSE in 1978 when he was just a, a mere lad, a mere lad, I, I'd say. Spent most of his time in the government department, but also as head of department of the International History Department uh, for two years. He's the author of seven monographs, starting with Russia and the origins of the First World War, and then looking at rulers in the old regime, the aristocracy in Europe, a biography of Nicholas II, Russia against Napoleon, and he's going to introduce us to his, first, his new book on the First World War. He's had many accolades, including member of the British Academy in 1993 and the winner of the Wolfson Prize for History uh, for Russia against Napoleon in 2010. One of the things that comes through from Chai's books is the importance of personalities in history, as well as structures and as well as ministries. And another important factor that comes through is the importance of archival sources. And in the book he's going to talk about tonight, both of those factors uh, come to the fore. So this is a book based on decades of experience of Russian history, but also on archival sources which have only just really in the last decade uh, been made available to us. So we welcome Professor Levin to talk about Towards the Plains. Thanks, Jen. Well, that was all very splendid, and it's lovely to be back. I have to add that... Um, as far as I can see, the institution to which I belonged has disappeared into some vast building site. I fell into about four holes trying to get here, but still, I arrived, which is a miracle. Good. Um, well, I mean, what I'm talking about, as Janet said, uh, is my book. Uh, and talking about one's own book is a bit like talking about one's own nose, you know, one's attached to it. Uh, so if I say that it seems to me that the book has two main merits... Uh, you must take that with a pinch of salt. But I do think it does. Uh, and those two, I think, strengths are firstly that it looks at the international crisis at the beginning of the 20th century, at the Great War, from an unusual angle, uh, basically Russian, East European. And if you do that, you don't just fill in what is not a complete gap, but what is certainly a very important aspect of the international crisis, which is Russia, which is certainly not nearly as well studied or understood uh, as Western and Central European uh, input into the war. So it fills an important gap, but it also, I think, does something different and more. If you look at the international crisis from the Russian angle, you do, to some extent, come up with a different international crisis and a different First World War. So that seems to me one of the interesting sides of the book. The other is simply that, yes, uh, I did spend a year half-killing myself, literally, in the Russian archives. There is a lot of new material, and I think it does make a major difference to some aspects of our understanding of the origins of the war. 
So that is really what I will start with. I will talk firstly about new views, new interpretations, and then I'll talk about the archives. And I will develop the talk from there. And there will, God willing, be plenty of time for questions afterwards. I mean, I suppose if you're talking about new interpretations, my most obvious starting point is a very obvious and actually pretty banal one, which is indeed that this was uh, a war which originated in Eastern Europe. It originated with uh, the crisis in the Balkans, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. It is entirely true to say that the First World War itself was decided on the Western Front by the victory of the Western Allies, the French, British, and Americans. It also seems to me, though, that the peace which followed the war, the peace settlement, was lost in Eastern Europe mostly. And it's not at all a coincidence that the Second World War began in Eastern Europe, over the Danzig issue specifically, but over that great geopolitical gap between Germany and Russia, which had opened up as a result of the peace settlement. I mean, if you were going to be slightly more, I suppose, specific, perhaps actually the opposite, also generalizing somewhat. It seems to me that really the war is about the crisis of empire in Eastern Europe. It is about the decline of the Ottoman Empire, the retreat of the Ottoman Empire from the Balkans, which then becomes uh, a theater for ever more vicious conflict between the Balkan states themselves and between the great power patrons of the Balkan states, above all the two traditional rivals in that neck of the, words, uh, the world, the Habsburgs and the Romanovs. Part of the crisis is to do with the fact that if the Balkans have already fallen by 1912-13, the biggest prize of all, Constantinople and the Straits, seems very possibly to be coming on the agenda with enormous implications, above all for Russia, but also for the Austrians and Germans and for the other great powers. Again, look, if the Crimean War could break out over precisely that issue at a time when actually the Ottoman Empire was not on the point of dissolution, it isn't necessarily that surprising that a great war breaks out in 1914 when Constantinople and the Straits really does seem to be coming on the agenda. And certainly the Austrian and the Russian empires have much more serious interests in Constantinople, the Balkans and the Straits than the French and British anyway did in 1853-4. But even more directly, the war begins because the Austrian elites are determined that they're not going to go the same way as the Ottoman Empire. And they mount a preemptive strike essentially to turn Serbia back into what it had been for most of the 19th century which is a semi-protectorate of Austria. Now, in the great scheme of things, in that era, there was nothing very wicked or unusual about that. The French had done precisely that in Morocco in the last 15 years. The British had done that in South Africa and Egypt. Uh, the uh, Russians had done the same in Mongolia. The Japanese had done the same in Korea. The basic point is that imperialism, for a number of reasons, is a game far more difficult to get away with even in the European second world, the Balkans, than outside Europe. And that, for all sorts of reasons, it's partly to do with the fact that, you know, Serbian society is more modern on the whole 
than most of what we would now describe as the non-European third world. It's harder to control by an imperial power. But above all, it's a question of Russia. You know, outside Europe, although the European great powers may be rivals, they are all complicit in the basic idea um, that organizing, governing, and kicking around the natives is good for them and good for the world. You can't get away with that in the Balkans, partly because the Russians will never accept that Germans kicking around Slavs uh, is good for anyone. Because, of course, it's an insult to Russia. This is a question of identity. It's also very simply that if you're the British and you have naval dominion, you can virtually do what you want in most areas outside Europe, or in many of them anyway. Uh, The problem in the Austrian case is that you have a land border with a rival great power, again called Russia. So the geopolitics, uh, you know, are, are, are very different. But fundamentally, as I say, what the Austrians are doing uh, is part of what one might more broadly call typical activity in the age of high imperialism. Uh, Now, whether the Austrians were right or wrong to think that they needed to reassert their power in that way is an interesting issue. I don't know whether Alan Sked's here, but he, for instance, has argued that the Austrian Empire was very far from being on the point of departure. It's an interesting set of issues. They're actually very, very interesting Russian intelligence documents. The head of the Petersburg Telegraph Agency in the Austrian Empire was essentially, actually, the head of Russian intelligence. Uh, And his reports, very detailed, are read by Nicholas II himself, all of them, uh, among, among others. They're read by the foreign minister and the war minister too. They're quite balanced. But whatever we may say in retrospect, I think we have to take it that at the time there was a pretty solid consensus that the Austrian Empire was in dire trouble, that its decline certainly as a genuine great power uh, was gathering speed and probably irreversible and that its disintegration was certainly a strong possibility. Again, very interesting documents in the Russian archives about when Bülow, the German chancellor, turns to the Russians and asks them to agree with Germany on what should be done if the Austrian Empire disintegrates. Very, very interesting internal discussions in the Russian foreign ministry. So seems to me that what one is actually looking at in 1914, and if you read the Austrian documents, it's very hard to escape this conclusion, is an Austrian preemptive strike designed to show the enemies of the Austrian Empire both in the Balkans, among the great powers, and within its own population. That it's, you know, the old dog has still got life in it uh, and claws to reassert its geopolitical uh, viability, if you like. Fine, so that pins down the origins of the war to Eastern Europe in a way. But it seems to me that the heart of the issue, really at a slightly more theoretical level, is the battle between empire, empires and nationalisms. And that, of course, is a conflict which runs through much of 20th century global history. The very moment that this conflict erupts in Eastern Europe and brings the whole of Europe into a great war, it is paralyzing British domestic politics. This is the Ulster issue. It also seems to me, at a sort of medium level of generalization, that the 1914, or if you like, the Austrian moment of the French and British empires is Suez in 1956. 
when you get imperial elites facing geopolitical decline, rising nationalist challenges, reacting with, I think, a very Habsburg combination of desperation, arrogance, and miscalculation. And the key difference is that in 1914, Big Brother in Berlin says, go ahead, and even gives the Austrians a bit of a push. In 1956, the big brother in Washington says and imposes no. Again, though, if you take it up to a still higher level of generalization, it seems to me that at the root of a lot of the instability in international politics before 1914 is rooted in the fact that the logic of international power, of international relations, if you like, and the logic of domestic politics are largely running in flatly opposite directions. The logic of international power is empire. And that, for a whole number of reasons, to some extent growing protectionism, even more, I think, technological developments. Technology is simply opening up for geopolitical competition, making valuable areas of the world which previously are deemed useless. I think the, the Boer War is a good example of that. Uh, you know, the British allow these Boer farmers to float loose in the 1870s and then fight a very expensive and bloody war to get them back under the empire in 99 to 1902. That's the Boer War. There are lots of reasons for that, but it seems to me one crucial one is that the gold and the diamonds have been discovered. What previously looked like a wasteland is now perfectly obviously going to be the economic centre of southern Africa, at a time when half the population of the British South African colonies are Boer. And the British fear, and rightly, I think, that given the fact that the Transvaal and the Orange Free State are going to be the centre of the Southern African economy, they may pull in uh, and attract the loyalties of the Boer population of Britain's own colonies. At a high level of generalisation, you can make the obvious parallels with the Austrians, the Serbs, and their fear that independent Serbia will become the core which will draw in certainly the Serbian subjects of the Austrian monarch, possibly the South Slavs as a whole. But I think the biggest single issue is America, the United States. Uh, once the United States has survived the great crisis of the 1860s and has then gone in for two generations of breakneck demographic and economic growth, it is perfectly clear to any intelligent observer of international relations in Europe, and that includes most of the statesmen. You know, it's out there, you can read it, they're saying it, that no European power is going to be able to compete with the United States in the 20th century for much longer unless it can somehow acquire resources of a continental scale. And the only way a European country can do that is through empire. And that seems to me the fundamental geopolitical logic for the age of high imperialism. And actually, I think the age of high imperialism is much more rooted in geopolitical logic than it is in Marxist terms in any kind of economic logic. Actually, it seems to me that the logic of increasingly globalizing capitalism runs against the logic of imperialist geopolitics. You know, the obvious argument that most of British trade is outside its empire the obvious argument that most of German trade is actually with the countries who it ends up fighting in 1914-18. So that is my general sort of sense of what's going on. Next thing I'll talk about are the archives. 
as, as I said, I had the runaround of seven Russian archives and almost died in the process. Um, it isn't just Russian archives, though. They're, I mean, I've read quite a lot before outside Russian archives. But, for instance, one of the things which is now available, which wasn't all those years ago when I was a child and wrote the book on Russia and the origins of the First World War, uh, are the memoirs of Strandman, the number two in the Russian location in Belgrade. Uh, when I worked on that book all those years ago, which is more an essay than a book, really, it was so short, um, I knew the, uh, the memoirs existed, um, but unfortunately they existed under the bed of Strandman's daughter in Washington, who'd taken refuge with the daughter of the American minister in Belgrade sometime in the 12th century, as far as I could see. She was about 120 years old, completely gaga, and utterly convinced that anyone who was trying to get hold of her dad's memoirs was a KGB agent. Well, now, thank God, they're there. And you can read them. They're in the Bakhmetiev in Colombia. Um, and they're great, truly great. Also, very interesting, the unpublished um, autobiography of Grigory Trubetskoy, who I'll talk about in a minute, head of the Near Eastern Department of the Russian Foreign Ministry in 1914. His family gave me those. And his great-niece wrote a thesis about him for the University of Vienna. And there's a lot of... etc., etc. There's quite a lot on the émigré side as well. But even when one's looking at that... I mean, the joy of that is that you then put it together with what you get in the Russian archives. And I was able to read all the Russian correspondence, Petersburg's correspondence with Belgrade, uh, both ways in the Foreign Ministry archive, and all the remaining correspondence of the Russian military attaché, Viktor Tamanov, uh, with the War Ministry in St. Petersburg in the military archive, and the private correspondence of a number of the key uh, Russian diplomats, including again Grigory Trubetskoy, partly in the Lichny Fondi, private, uh, private deposits of the foreign ministry, but also in the State Historical Archive in Moscow. So there's, it's, it's the ability to put together archival sources from a number of different directions, uh, which matters. But undoubtedly, as I say, it's the Russian archives which matter most, and of them, beyond any question, the archive of the foreign ministry, which was closed to foreigners partly even closed actually to Russians very often uh, in Soviet days, and is of course now closed again, not for political reasons, but because the archive is busily subsiding into the Moscow metro. They closed it a week after I sort of finished my research. Um, it will open again at some point, but you know, it isn't yet. Uh, so just say a word about that foreign ministry archive. Um, you know, literally... Obviously, I could give the whole talk about this. In fact, I am giving a talk about it in um, Philadelphia in two weeks' time. Uh, it's above all the official correspondence there, but there are um, a lot of private deposits, private letters. There's also the diary of Theodore Martins, who was the chief legal advisor to the foreign minister, only one, or ministry, only one volume of which has been published in Russian. The rest is sitting there, and it's also great. I mean, to try and say what was best there is a sort of nightmare summer. I think I'd make two points about getting into the archive. The first is that it does, to some extent, reverse the bias towards what you might describe as the official line. By that I mean the line which Russian foreign policy actually pursued in 1906-14, we do, after all, and have had for decades, the published letters of Benkendorf, the ambassador in London, Izvolsky, the foreign minister and ambassador in Paris, 
we've had for as long the memoirs of Sergei Sazonov, the foreign minister, 1910 to 14. What the archives give you is not an opposite point of view, but it is all the correspondence from the ambassadors in Berlin and Vienna, and as I've said, the legation in Serbia. Um, just to give you an example, I mean, old Ostenzaken, the ambassador in, Nikolai, Nicholas von der Ostenzaken, the ambassador in Berlin, getting a bit gaga by 1909-10, but even so, the reporting from the Russian embassy in Berlin in the Bosnian crisis is superb. I think it's the highest quality reporting that I saw, you know, from any of the Russian diplomats. It's partly superb because Austin Zakhan has a very good military attaché and a finance attaché and a naval attaché. Um, and he exploits them all, brings them together um, in a very intelligent way, um, which you can't by any means always rely on. For instance, the Russian legation in, in Belgrade is paralyzed partly by the fact that Hartwig, the minister, is very much disliked by his deputy Strandman, partly because Hartwig is essentially not telling Sazonov the truth, nor is he passing on uh, perfectly Sazonov's instructions to the Serbian government. On top of that, Hartwig and the military attaché Atamonov are at daggers drawn. Um, one of the great things about Ostenzaken is that he unites his embassy, uh, and Russia does also have a personal military representative at uh, William II's court, old Ilya Tatishev. Uh, who's by no means as stupid as, uh, uh, as people make out and whose reports are also all there, again, in one of the domestic archives. So it's good. I mean, that is, is strong stuff. The second obvious place where the archives make a huge difference is during the Balkan Wars and up to 1914, January the 1st, 1914. You have to remember that the main Russian published series of documents, for some mysterious reason, ceases on the 1st of September, 1912, and begins again on the 1st of January, 1914. Well, as you might politely say, a few things happened in between. Um, one of the problems in terms of Western uh, you know, historiography on the origins of the war is that we've been far too dependent on the memoirs of Vladimir Kakovtsev, the chairman of the Council of Ministers, partly because he wrote them, as you might say, con brio, and partly because they're translated into English. When you get into the archives, you see, firstly, that Kharkovtsev was not always telling the truth, or he was, as you might say, inaccurate. Um, and also, you do much better understand the point of view of the military leadership, as well as the very interesting and delicate relationship between, among the ministers as a whole, and particularly between Kharkovtsev and Sazonov, the foreign minister, in a situation where really, in the end, only four people count in Russia for the final decision, Nicholas II, Chairman of the Council of Ministers, War Minister and Foreign Minister. These kind of little personal details are absolutely crucial. And also, if you look at all of these documents from the foreign and military archives on the Balkan Wars, you far better understand um, the mentalities and the calculations of the Russian military leadership, which again you know, is absolutely essential if you're going to understand how they reacted in July 14. So that, I think, is all I'll say about the archives as a whole. What about if I had horror of horrors to choose one archival document? Not at all easy, because there are lots of very, very interesting ones. But probably, I would say, it is a document actually in the military archive 
but it is a speech by the new foreign minister, Alexander Izvolsky, in February 1907, to the State Defense Council, largely military and naval audience. He's talking to generals obsessed by Russia's military weakness in the Far East and fear of a renewed war with Japan. He's also questioned by, for instance, Fedya Dubasov, an admiral, who puts forward what was the dominant line in the 1890s, namely that the future of the world really revolves around the Asia-Pacific region and its economy and geopolitics, and that Russia's future lies in Asia because of fundamentally the geopolitical argument I was putting earlier, that the only way to compete with the United States long-term or to be at the top level is through empire. We, Russia, are uniquely well-placed for that competition because we have a vast and unexploited <coughs> Siberian empire. We must stress uh, the development of that empire, both for geopolitical and, to some extent, for domestic political reasons, we must therefore put every stress on managing our foreign policy with the priority towards the Asia-Pacific. So this is what Izvolsky is facing. His answer in a long speech is actually very interesting. He says firstly that Russia is in its culture, in its identity, in its civilization, as he put it, part of European civilization. He says, and he goes into detail, that you cannot divorce foreign policy from cultural issues, from issues of identity, as they would now be described. If, he says, you want Russia to prioritize in its foreign policy the Asia-Pacific region, then the first thing you need to do is to move the capital from Petersburg to Omsk or Chelyabinsk. The second thing, he says, is that the threat which the admirals and generals are talking about from Japan in East Asia is one which can be averted by diplomatic means. He argues that the Russian-Japanese war was unnecessary, that actually the Japanese were not demanding things which were incompatible with fundamental Russian interests. A compromise could have been achieved even as late as 1903, and he argues, and this is February 1907, a compromise can still be achieved. Essentially what he says is, we can control events in East Asia. It lies within our power to come to an agreement with the Japanese. Thirdly, and this is very important, he says it does not come within our power uh, to control events in Eastern Europe and the Near East. Because, he says, within the next 20 years, the Ottoman and Austrian questions will come right into the middle of the picture, by which he means the fate of the Austrian and Ottoman empires, and will probably find their solution, or will very possibly find their solution. I must be careful. He says that Russia cannot afford not to have a major say in those issues, unless it wishes to assume the place of Persia in the world. And that is both a reference to status and to the very deep sense of the Russian elite that Russia to be Russia has to be a great power. This is their Russia. This is a traditional gentry, military elite. Being a great power is absolutely fundamental to their sense of their own identity, 
and the identity of the Russia of which they are proud. But also, and absolutely fundamentally, and I hardly need to point it out, it's not much fun being a Persia in the world of high imperialism. People gobble your territory, impose themselves on your government, impose all sorts of unequally, etc., etc., etc. So you can see what Izvolsky is saying. I think the point to note is that Izvolsky is not saying we want the next 20 years to bring up the Ottoman and Austrian questions. He's implying quite the opposite. He's saying that historical developments, partly in terms of geopolitical developments, but above all, internal political developments in those two empires, are going to bring a crisis whether we want it or not. And we have to prioritize coping with that crisis. And I think it is fair to say that that actually is the dominant view, certainly within the foreign ministry leadership and to a significant degree within the elite, the government elite as a whole, down to 14. It is not that they want a crisis, it's that they feel it's coming and they can't stand aside. The issues and interests are too important for Russia. Now, Zvolsky goes to Paris in 1910 as foreign minister and Sergei Sazonov replaces him. The basic reason why Sazonov is chosen is not at all because he is the most qualified person in the foreign ministry to occupy that role. There are, in principle, better candidates. Doesn't mean Sazonov's an idiot. Doesn't mean he's completely unqualified, but he's an odd choice in a way. He's obviously not one of the ambassadors. None of the ambassadors, except, and I'll come back to this, Roman Rosen could have served. Most of them were tottering on the grave, literally. Um, and Roman Rosen, the ambassador in Washington, just about to retire, has a diametrically opposed view of Russian foreign policy. But actually, Sazonov is not even the most obvious candidate among the second-tier Russian diplomats, the minister's plenipotentiary. He's only, after all, ever headed one mission, and that's the Vatican. The key to Sazonov being selected is, above all, that both Benkendorf, the ambassador in London, and Izvolsky know that Sazonov is their man. They know that he shares their fundamental views on foreign policy, the need for the French alliance, the need for the alliance with England, balance of power against Germany, etc. Sazonov had served under both Izvolsky and Benkendorf. They sometimes politely, particularly Benkendorf, address him in a somewhat kindly and avuncular fashion in which no British diplomat would ever have dared address a foreign minister. He's their man. He is also Pyotr Stalipin's brother-in-law. Pyotr Stalipin is the chairman of the Council of Ministers, working out within that very, very small group, four people, five at the most, who really counts the most complicated issue of all is how much the chairman of the Council of Ministers is important. He oughtn't to be important at all, according to the strict constitutional law. Sometimes he isn't important when Ivan Garamikin is chairman of the Council. But in 1909, 1910, 1911, when Pyotr Stalipin is at the height of his power, totally contrary to what the law says, the Constitution says, actually Stalipin is probably the most important person in foreign policy decision-making. And, as I say, Sazonov, Sergei Sazonov, is his brother-in-law. So, yeah, that immediately begins to tell you something. Sazonov sticks to the line of Benkendorf and Izvolsky. He adds to it a sort of personal commitment as regards 
sort of Slavophilism, uh, which Benkendorf and Izvolsky are more... Well, they don't share to the same real extent that he does. Uh, he's also, if anything, even more um, than Alexander Benkendorf, a very strong Anglophile. I think the best way, though, to understand the fundamental underpinnings of Russian foreign policy under Sazonov uh, is to look at Grigory Trubetskoy, Prince Grigory Nikolaevich Trubetskoy, one of the most interesting figures, not just in Russian but in European uh, diplomacy before the First World War. He is the younger brother of two quite famous idealist philosophers, one of whom was rector of Petersburg, no, Moscow University. Uh, he's from a very interesting Moscow family. Again, I could give a talk um, just about him, and I should say that I was deeply grateful to his descendants for their, their help. Grigory Trubetskoy is important really for four reasons. Firstly, his official position. From 1912 down to the outbreak of the war, he is the head of what is, it's not what it's called, but what is the Near Eastern Department of the Russian Foreign Ministry. That essentially covers the Balkans, Serbia, uh, and Constantinople, the Ottoman Empire. Secondly, um, it is perfectly clear that he has an enormous influence over Sergei Sazonov. That is because Trubetskoy is more intelligent than Sazonov, he has a better academic training. He actually puts into uh, schema, puts into some kind of overall policy. Sezonov's basic Slavophile and foreign policy realpolitik instincts and commitments. Interestingly, Grigory Trubetskoy himself writes that he was often terrified by just how much influence uh, Sazonov allowed him just how much uh, Sazonov took his views um, and accepted them as government policy. Thirdly, Grigory Trubetskoy is very important because between 1906 and 1912, he retired from the foreign ministry and joined his elder brother Yevgeny, who was quite a famous uh, idealist philosopher, in editing the journal Moskovsky Zhnedelnik. Moscow Weekly. Grigory Trubetskoy, with his friend Pyotr Struva, who some of you will know about, this is a leading Russian intellectual, former Marxist, by 1967, probably the leading Russian liberal or conservative liberal intellectual. He and Trubetskoy, along with some allies, particularly along with backers in the Moscow business community, are the creators, both in terms of the ideas and in terms, really, of the whole movement, you know, uh, of what is really described sometimes as liberal imperialism in Russia. And this doctrine is putting it too strong, but it is a sort of doctrine, uh, and the policy preferences which stem from the doctrine dominates or comes to dominate what you might describe as the center ground of Russian official politics. Everything from the right wing of the Constitutional Democratic Party in the Duma out to, through the Octoberists and Nationalists, out to the right wing of the Nationalists. Uh, they represent the great majority in the Duma, in the Russian parliament, uh, 
they represent the majority in what you could describe as elite society. Educated society as a whole, perhaps. Certainly elite society. It is, of course, extremely interesting and very much to the point that this man who has played a crucial role in evolving the ideas, the doctrine of liberal imperialism, and of forming them within public opinion, in the press, in the parliament, uh, in all sorts of public fora, as, if you like, the dominant view of Russian elite society, is now appointed to head the Near Eastern Department of the Foreign Ministry in 1912. That tells you something instantly about the connections between the state and educated society, public opinion, when it comes to foreign policy. There is a very great degree of consensus. There are opponents, and I'll talk about them, but there is a significant degree of consensus, particularly between Sazonov's foreign ministry, Sazonov's policy, and public opinion. And Trubetskoy is not just the absolute symbol of that, he's one of the key elements in it. But then there's a fourth and very fascinating reason why Grigory Trubetskoy is so important. Of all the statesmen, the key statesmen, and I would say Grigory Trubetskoy is one of the 20 most important in Europe in 1914. He is the only one who was written extensively in Moskovsky, Yezhnedielnik, not just about international affairs, but about what we might now describe as academic international relations. He talks about the nature of power in international relations, security, balance of power, risk. He talks about identity and foreign policy. And he is the only leading European statesman of that day who you'll find talking in that way. You'll never be able to get that out of diplomatic correspondence. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily trust it if you heard it, which you don't actually often, in retrospective memoirs. This is, you know, very, very interesting material. Basically, what Trubetskoy says sums up the consensus behind policy. It is to do with Russian security, which he sees as rooted in the balance of power, uh, necessary because of the risk of German hegemony, in Russian interests at the Straits, which are absolutely vital to Russian exports and to Russian security, certainly more important in geopolitical and commercial terms for Russia than Suez for the British or Panama for the Americans. Uh, much more of Russian exports go through the Straits, and there's no alternative. They have to go through the Straits. And then identity. Russia's role as the leader of the Slav powers, Russia's role as a great power. And there are fantastic, uh, uh, you know, documents uh, here. Actually, again, in the archives as well. You can, you can see when Trubetskoy is producing a document, even if it's not signed, uh, because he writes in a way which no minister usually writes. Um, you know, they don't write about Russia's history and church and sort of international relations and their link to domestic policy. No. Now, what I've been talking about so far is the official line. It is also important to look at the critics. And here, Roman Rosen, who I mentioned before, is fascinating. He's fascinating because he is the most intelligent critic, at least that one knows about and can document, within the Russian diplomatic service. A man who spent the overwhelming majority of his career outside Europe, and certainly outside the European First World. He was, for a time, minister in Belgrade. Rosen's basic conception 
is that firstly, one must raise one's eyes from Europe and think globally. And that in those terms, the European balance of power is now largely irrelevant and must must think of a global balance of power. It is the Anglo-Americans who are the near hegemons, and Russia has every interest in encouraging the Germans to challenge them, not least because they will do so a long way from the Russian border. Uh, He also argues, and this is the same line as I've mentioned already, that the future of the world probably lies in the Asia-Pacific region and Russia's future lies in Siberia and in the maritime province, the Pacific province. He argues that if Russia can just stay at peace and develop its resources for two generations, it will be the only truly great power in Europe, the only competitor with the United States. On the other hand, if it goes to war... That will bring social revolution and catastrophe, the disintegration of the Tsarist state and the necessary disintegration along with it of Russian society, the society to which he belongs. What is, in terms of policy prescriptions, what comes out of this is ditch the French, ditch the British, leave the Balkans to the Austrians, it'll tie them down forever, the Western Balkans. The only thing which really matters to us is security on our German and Austrian Western borders, and the Germans and Austrians are the only people who can guarantee that. Plus, the Straits, though very important for Russia, are, in a sense, uh, a dead end. Because, after all, they uh, they lead into a closed sea, the Mediterranean. The British control the exits. So seizing the Straits is actually not going to secure our exports anyway. That's roughly his line. What is fascinating, again like Trubetskoy, is to look at the ways in which Rosen's ideas on foreign policy are also rooted in conceptions of Russian identity. And here, very interesting is the fact that his brother, Victor Rosen, is the dean of the Faculty of Orientology in St. Petersburg University and the father, really, of 20th century Russian orientology. That's putting it too much, but he is the leading figure in his day in Russian studies of Asia. And what Rosen and his disciples are arguing in academic terms is that the distinction general at the time between Europe and Asia, East and West, in terms of the origins of culture, language, civilization, is false. Secondly, that in any event, culture is certainly not rooted in blood, and not really even in ethnicity. And that cuts across most of the dominant ideas which underpin thinking in the age of high imperialism. How this moves into practice and policy in domestic terms is the argument that Russia is only two-thirds Slav anyway, and that what you need to do to preserve the Russian Empire is to evolve some kind of political identity, a Eurasian political identity, which will hold the loyalties of a Eurasian and multi-ethnic population, while at the same time allowing them freedom to express themselves in their own native languages. This is not yet full-scale Eurasianism, still less is it Soviet nationalities policy. But it is, as you can see, heading in that direction. So fascinatingly, you have these two very different lines. Now, in the Russia of pre-1914, Grigory Trubetskoy speaks of the majority. That doesn't necessarily mean that in intellectual terms, Rosen is wrong, 
nor that had war been averted in time, his version of Eurasianism might not have taken on great resonance within Russian society, as indeed to some extent it has subsequently. All right, so that, you know, is to finish that section. The last thing I will talk about, and briefly to try and bring out some of the ways in which looking at Russia tells you something about the crisis as a whole, is to say a few words about how Russian elites and Russian policymakers thought and interpreted a future European war. And there are two excellent ways of doing that. Firstly, in 1908, Nicholas II and Stalipin told all the other ministers to report in detail about the implications of a future all-European war for those sections of Russian life for which they were responsible. And there is a mass of documentation as regards their responses in the main historical archive in Petersburg. Fascinating. Tie that to the debate in Russia about the books by a man called Ivan Bloch, famous in the 1890s, partly because he wrote just before the first Hague Peace Conference. Bloch's basic line being, given the development of capitalism and globalization, a future war would be senseless. Victory, in any meaningful sense, could not happen. All the great powers would smash each other to death. Because modern capitalist states are to such an extent dependent on globalized financial, commercial, insurance, and other links. On top of that, he argues, in political terms, their societies will disintegrate, their governments will be delegitimized by a European war. So it's fascinating stuff. What is often forgotten, in fact, it's virtually always forgotten, certainly in Western leaderships, is that Bloch does add that of all the great powers, it's Russia which will best last out a European war, precisely because it is less developed. You know. So that's an interesting one, and in many ways it's that word uh, which has the biggest resonance within Russian policymakers. If you look at the archives, and at some of actually even the, the printed stuff by now, uh, you can see how Bloch's ideas... Uh, move straight, well, firstly, are absolutely the center of the minds of many of the key decision makers and are absolutely central to specific Russian military planning for the war. And you can document it in the archives. It's all there. Uh, first, a word on the civilian leadership. Utsazonov himself writes that unless Germany wins within two months, it's bound to lose the war because its economy and its political system will disintegrate. The archives make it perfectly clear that the civilian ministers are convinced that a European war must be short. I mean, to do Sazon of justice, the British did have plans to destroy the German economy in two months, which they abandoned in panic in August 1914. So it's not as stupid as it sounds. They abandoned them above all because they feared it might collapse the British economy, and above all, it might infuriate the United States. Even more interesting is the military leadership. The Russian military intellectuals uh, thought hard about Bloch and wrote a great deal about him. They agreed with him that 
for the Central and West European powers because of economic and political reasons, a war would have to be short. Therefore, they said, the Germans were going to try and win a war within two months, and that was the biggest danger. You can find in the archives very interesting correspondence between the new war minister, Vladimir Sukhumlinov, part of this is published, uh, and Vladimir Kakovson, Pyotr Stalipin, in which Sukhumlinov writes that all the leading other European powers cannot fight a war which lasts more than a very few months, for economic and political reasons. Stress, NB, he says in military terms a war could last longer. It's political and economic reasons which make a short war essential. In other words, here is a military leader taking the logic of military planning from what civilians say. Therefore, he says, given the tremendous difficulties we face in getting the Russian army ready to fight a war after the debacle of 1945, it is avoiding defeat within two months, which must be the highest priority. And that is interesting, and it actually filters its way right through Russian military thinking and Russian military planning. It's not an, ex you know, it's not an excuse for why the Russian military leadership didn't plan for a long war but it does help you to understand why they didn't. And that leads me on to the last point, which I will talk about, which is military idiocy. It is, you know, more or less accepted, certainly, I think, in the public mind, although uh, Douglas Haig has, and the military leadership, have had their defenders in the last generation and a half. But on the whole, the general perception is that the European military leaderships were pretty goofy in their expectations of a future war. And, of course, there's some truth in that. But if you look at the Russian side, and I have no reason to think they're any cleverer than anyone else, it's at best a half-truth. Far from being unaware of the enormous destructive power of modern firearms, the Russian military leadership is obsessed by it. They know that their soldiers are going to have to cross a kilometre of killing ground when they attack an enemy position. What's worse, these soldiers are no longer long-service veterans imbued with the pride of the old, you know, regular regiments. But they're conscripts, in most cases recalled to the colours, often married after years in civilian life. How are you going to motivate these people to face the enormous casualties and demands, you know, that crossing a kilometre of killing ground in the face of modern firearms is going to entail? What's even worse, they're going to have to do it in open order unlike their grandfathers who advanced shoulder to shoulder with their comrades with a corporal behind each fifth back. Well, the generals say it can be done, and they point to the Japanese in the 1945 war. But they say it can only be done through patriotic, intense patriotic indoctrination through the schools. And they also say that wars can be won at an acceptable price, a price which most of society will fully accept and agree was worthwhile. But it can only be won with the patriotically indoctrinated youth, conscripts, and on the offensive. And actually, if you looked at history, even the history of industrial era warfare, the generals were right. If you looked at the German wars of reunification, if you looked at the Russo-Japanese war, if you looked at the Balkan wars of 1912 to 13, and of course the general staffs did, one problem about the Balkan Wars is that they bear out everything that the generals had said.
the Balkan allies storm Ottoman positions, well-defended Ottoman positions, with experienced troops armed and trained by the Germans with the latest German firepower. And the Balkan allies storm those positions in the first month of the war. They win the war within three weeks, partly by taking the offensive, disrupting Ottoman mobilization, imposing their will on the enemy. And they take over the whole of Ottoman Europe at a price which virtually every Balkan-educated person considers well worthwhile, certainly all the governments. And then you could look at the American Civil War. It's sometimes argued, particularly in North America, that if only the European general staffs had looked at the American Civil War. Well, again, in terms of Russia, that's nonsense. Nikolai Sukhotin, the chief of the General Staff Academy, wrote his thesis on the use of cavalry in the American Civil War. Large, very large parts of the Russian cavalry were transformed into a long-distance raiding role uh, on the line of Sherman, essentially, and of the Confederate cavalry commanders as a result. But actually, the American Civil War itself confirms everything the general said. That war was won above all else because hundreds of thousands, even millions of northern young men were willing to die in the cause of American nationalism, willing to die in defense of a nation which stretched from ocean to ocean. They were not dying in defense of their homes or families. The South was no threat to that. They were dying for American nationalism. And they died attacking because they had to, if the war was going to be won. The South had to be conquered. And the overwhelming majority of Americans to this day think that the price of victory... And remember that the American Civil War cost more casualties than all the other American wars put together until we were halfway through Vietnam. I should think 99% of the American population is convinced that that price was worthwhile. And I suspect that most people in this room, if they thought about it, would also believe that that price was worthwhile. After all, the entire world in which we live, in geopolitical terms, is based on the alliance of the British Empire with the United States. If, as was very possible, the Confederacy had achieved its independence, you would not just have had a divided United States, you would almost certainly have had a rump north at loggerheads and possibly at war with the British Empire, at which point everything would be different. The Germans would certainly have dominated 20th century Europe, for better or worse. So the idea that the generals were necessarily stupid in imagining that wars could still be won at an acceptable cost is, I think, incorrect. Of course, and this is the conclusion, they got it wrong. Uh, the First World War didn't work out that way. But it very, very, very nearly did. If, I think, the Germans had not brought the Americans into the war at just the moment when the Russian Revolution was, taking, was about to take Russia out, then I think the Germans would have won the First World War in military terms. There is absolutely no way in which the Western Allies, the French and British, without the Americans and without the Russians, could have defeated Germany. I think it's probably true, though not quite as certain, that the Germans couldn't have defeated the Western Allies. Though Ludendorff came not too far, not too far in 1918, and if you take out the hope of American help, you never know. But the whole point is you didn't need to win on the Western Front to win the First World War. And that takes me back to where I was. This was an East European war. If you could have stalemate on the Western Front and victory in the East, then Germany 
had won the First World War. Essentially, it revolved around maintaining the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, by which Russia lost all its western borderlands, and they all became de facto protectorates of Germany. Above all, it meant an independent, notionally Ukraine, which, because of the geopolitical and political realities, domestic political realities of the time, could only exist as a German protectorate and must look to Germany because any independent Ukraine had to be the enemy of Russia and had to be the enemy of Poland and therefore had to have German protection. If the Germans had been able to maintain Brest-Litovsk with all those protectorates in the east and above all with Ukraine as a German protectorate, then they had made the essential step to creating first step to creating empire in Europe. The basic point is that without Ukrainian industry, two-thirds of the Russian Empire's coal industry, 64% of its metallurgical industry, without Ukrainian agriculture, very large slice of the Russian Empire's agricultural experts, without the Ukrainian population, the Russia of that day, the Russia before Stalin developed, the West Siberian industrial complex, was not a great power. The basic rule of European geopolitics is that if Russia ceases to be a great power, Germany dominates Europe. That is at that time, unless the Americans step in. Of course, to say that the Germans had the possibility that they'd taken the first step is not to say that they would have succeeded. In creating even hegemony, let alone empire, military victory is only the first step and often the easier one. The British discovered that in North America between 1756 and 1783. The second step is political consolidation. Napoleon discovered that as well. The Germans would have had real problems, uh, and they would have needed to show a political nous greater than they'd shown for most of the preceding 20 years. But they didn't just have military power and the geopolitical logic that Russia was out of being a great power for at least a generation. They also had cultural and economic power on their side, and they also, if they acted sensibly, had natural allies among many of the key nationalisms of Eastern Europe. I can't say whether they would have succeeded in doing, nor actually can I say whether it would have been better or worse had they done so. The one thing that I think you can say is that it's hard to imagine it could have been worse. Because the basic point about the First World War is that it was a war which began in Eastern Europe as much as anything, more than anything, as a struggle between the Russians and the various German communities to dominate East Central Europe. Completely bizarrely, it ended with the defeat of both Russia and Germany, both of which were excluded from the peace settlement. You cannot have a European stable peace directed without and against the potentially two most powerful countries on the continent. For that reason, the Versailles Settlement was virtually bound to collapse and was most likely to collapse as it did in a second European and World War beginning in Eastern Europe. Great, that's it. Fine, thank you. Okay, the 
Thank, thank, thank you very much. It just shows that it's, it's worth being an archive rat to, to find out the sort of the richness of, of Russian perceptions and thoughts on the eve of the First World War uh, and to put that in a global context. The hands are going up. Uh, we have about half an hour. Shall I take two or three at a time? Yeah, I do. Okay, yeah. it's uh, here at the back and then uh, gentleman here and then gentleman right at the back. So we, we start with you, please. Janet, you ought to get at least one or two women. I find it, sorry, I'm an oldie, I find it very difficult to hear you. We've got a pillar between us anyway. Right, thank you. Yeah. You very effectively portrayed the quality of debate among Russian uh, decision makers, policy makers, mm. leading up to the... Uh, um, uh, the First World War. Uh, there, there were occasional echoes of the ideas of Halford Mackinder. I wonder how far uh, the, the people that you've been describing were aware of some of these ideas, the, the significance of the pivot area, uh, the heartland, the, the, the role of relations between Germany and, um, and Russia in particular. Could you say anything about that? Okay. And, and it was, you're, you're the second one, gentleman with glasses. Thank you. It's been argued that after the humiliation that was the annexation of Bosnia in 1908, Russia simply could not afford another diplomatic defeat, and that in Nicholas's eyes, this necessitated not only a forceful response to further aggression towards Slavic people, but a war. Did the sources that you consulted uh, collaborate, uh, corroborate this? Thank you. And at the back. Thank you very much for a brilliant talk. It just, there's a question, it comes just a little bit outside the page you covered, but I think it might be relevant. Um, after the First World War, uh, the two pariah powers, the new Soviet regime and defeated Weimar Germany, try, signed a treaty at Rapallo, where, if I'm right, the um, Reichswehr was given the opportunity to train with the Red Army, and that later proved uh, useful when they hit the attack Russia years later. Could you, uh, there's a man called Walter Rathen, you probably know, helped organize that treaty, but um, though it's a little bit outside the picture cover, could you just say anything about how maybe the events you referred to brilliantly uh, relate to the Treaty of Rapallo? Sure. Okay, should I stop there and answer them? Uh, I'll try and do it briefly. Forgive me, catch me and ask me more. I haven't actually come across Russians specifically referring to Mackinder, I think, except once. But a lot of the ideas, of course, yeah, a lot of the ideas are, are there. Um, yes, I mean, you know, I suppose the, the basic point is this awareness that railways are more valuable to Russia potentially than to any other country because they open up continental heartlands and they open up Siberia. Uh, and that you get from a lot of them. Um, very intelligent, some of them. Uh, so they're not using quite the, the words, but they're using, as I say, the fundamental ideas. The, the most intelligent, I just didn't have time to go into all of this, the most intelligent of all critics of the official line, uh, Sergei Vita, the finance minister, and Piotr Donavo, the former interior minister. Well, Vita's great line is that what one needs to do is to create the alliance between French capital... German technology and Russian resources. 
in order to create some vast Eurasian zone of common economic interest, which will both avoid war in northern Eurasia and Europe, and which will act as a counterweight to the Anglo-American potential hegemony over the world. Couldn't afford another... Yes, I mean, it's... 1908 to 9, though actually, I mean, the government was itself partly responsible, I think, for the, the complete mess over Bosnia. Um, I mean, personally, I think Izvolsky was right in many ways, trying to come to a deal with Arendtal, but it, I, mean, I can't go into the details. Um, then there was the perception that uh, Russia had been pushed around again in 1912-13, uh, with some truth, I think. But the, you know, the response to the Austrian push, I think, is inevitable in 14. Every element which, you know, I studied comes together to explain why the Russians reacted in the way they did. And once that ultimatum had been delivered, really, it's very hard to imagine how they could have reacted otherwise. It's partly straight, old-fashioned, diplomatic, realpolitik. You know, if we allow our client Serbia to be taken out, um, we've lost the Balkans. The Romanians will immediately be scared back into the Central Powers bloc. We've lost the Turks for good. They already think Germany runs over everything else in Europe. Now it'll be confirmed. The generals, in a sort of narrower sense, um, have been talking to themselves about just how many Austrian army corps will be diverted south in the event of a future European war against Serbia. By 1917, the military attaché in Serbia tells them there'll be half a million good Serb and Montenegrin troops on the Austrian southern front. Allow Serbia to be taken out, um, and that has immediate military implications on the eastern front. So they're absolutely determined that they're not going to let Serbia go. Um, Then you have the basic domestic political issue of the regime's legitimacy. And then you have, at least as important, the fact that, you know, the greatest vice for that, at least male, well, I think for the ruling elites as a whole, the whole mentality of the Russian gentry and of Russian high officialdom, and of Nicholas II himself, for a man the worst vice is cowardice. Um, You know, to back down in the face of this kind of absolute challenge, very difficult in terms of fundamental values, um, which run across the whole elite, So I would put all of those together, um, trying to disentangle them, God only knows, to prioritize. Um, Even two or three of them would have, I think, explained why Russia acted as it did. Uh, I think if you can blame Russia, it's much less for what happened in the July crisis than for how they got themselves in that position. Rapallo, yes, I mean, it's the logical response. But then, I mean, the more devastating logical response is the Soviet-Nazi pact in '39. And actually, Stalin did exactly what Nicholas II's more conservative, some of them anyway, Pyotr Donavo, Mienchikov, the leader, leader writer of Nove Vremia, are urging him to do in 14. Fundamentally, Russia has a choice. Either you gang up with the French and Germans to deter Germany, uh, French and, and British to deter Germany, or you try and encourage the, British, uh, the, the Germans to go westwards. Um, that is what Mienchikov and, above all, Donavo are urging. And it's what Stalin does in 39. Um, and you can see the logic. You don't need to invoke Marxism or anything like that. There's a clear geopolitical logic. You know, um, Stalin's idea in '39 is that we will have a repeat of the First World War. The French and British on the one hand and the Germans on the other will exhaust each other for years 
that will give us peace on our western frontier and time to develop our potentially immense resources and to consolidate our political system. Uh, to his horror, um, the Germans knock over France in six weeks and chase the British back over the Channel, and he's faced with the same threat as Alexander I in 1811. But although, you know, far be it from me to defend Stalin in any way, no one can really blame him for that miscalculation since the six-week victory over France astonished not just the British and French but also the great majority of German generals. Um, Russia was in a very difficult position. You could argue they took the wrong choice in 14 and they took the wrong choice in 39. Um, but the choice was very difficult. The, the elements involved in it, often incalculable, and the stakes enormous. I mean, one of the things, you know, reading those dispatches of these Russian diplomats, 414, these were not evil men. They were not usually stupid men. Um, of course, they had the values and the convictions of their class, their gender, the whole lot. Um, but they were not usually geniuses either. But those dispatches were you know, touched on topics which as a result of the war killed probably 50 million Russians in the end. You know, from war came revolution. From revolution came civil war and famine and the Stalinist dictatorship. Because Russia left the First World War in the way it did and was not part of the, the peace settlement, uh, the First World War led pretty much inexorably to the second. That's, a, you know, quite something to think about. Some more questions. There's someone right at the back. Yes, there? one right at the back over there, and, and, and there's one over here where you can never see from the front. Is it? Uh, was there a third one? I didn't see a third. Unless there's someone up there. Oh, look. oh yes. Yeah. And what's up? Yes. Yeah. I can't. I can't. Oh, okay. Right, right at the top there. We'll start over here, shall we? And we'll go right, well, left, up. Okay. <laughs> uh, thanks. Uh, well, that was a great talk. Thank you. I mean. The suggestion to refocus on Asia and move the capital to Chelyabinsk and so on sounded quite radical. Um, but when you talk about Russia's historic interests in Europe, it just sounds almost inevitable, even now, that the war would occur. I mean, is that kind of totally radical change, the refocus on Asia, the only thing that could have avoided the war for Russia? And it was one... Yes, please. Sorry. We're making you run around with the microphone. <laughs> yes, do you think that um, the, the autocratic governments of, of the period find, found it easier to eventually press the button and go to war compared to the democratic governments? Mm-hmm. Okay, there was one right, at the, right up at the back. Um, just thinking about um, the cause of World War I, um, these days people like Chris Clark seem to be talking a lot about contingency and risk and moving away from the idea of German intentionalism. And in that, it seems that Russian mobilisation seems to be becoming more important. Um, why did the Germans think that it wouldn't happen? Okay. Um, <clears throat> refocus on Asia. Look, the Russians did refocus on Asia in the 1890s. Uh, if, as many predicted, the Russo-Japanese War had ended either in a draw or in a limited Russian victory, um, then Russia would have re remained refocused on Asia, partly for the very good reason put forward by Arthur Balfour, British Foreign Minister, who said, look, 
Um, in that situation, uh, any time that Russia tries to act in Europe, it'll be well aware that the Japanese are waiting in the Far East to pounce because the basic reality is that Japan's great interests lie in East Asia, whereas Russia can hardly resign from its European interests. Um, if you want, I mean, look, in a way, how could anything have been worse for the Russians? It's hard to imagine that the 20th century could have been worse unless Hitler had won the Second World War. I think if the Germans had won the First World War, we'd probably not had Hitler and possibly not had Stalin, one never knows. Um, I think Vitter was right. Uh, I think the great crisis which threatened world peace was the decline and probable fall of the Ottoman and possibly Austrian empires, and that crisis could only be managed through Russo-German collaboration in a situation where Russia saw its most fundamental interests as lying in Asia. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I could go on about this for a long time, but that's my basic answer. Autocracy and war. Um, I think a bit, a bit. Um, I think there's something to be said for the argument of militarized elites. Not, I think, so much for aristocratic elites as such. I mean, the, the actual aristocracy and the full meaning of the term uh, is far too comfy and is on the whole far too fearful, certainly in Eastern European, of revolution. Uh, it, it's, it's professional military types who've taken on some of the old warrior aristocratic values of the past. I mean, who's more dangerous, court general or Ludendorff? Um, and actually, the most dangerous Russian diplomat of the senior ones is Hartwig, the minister in Belgrade, who's the most bourgeois senior Russian. So, it's, I mean, it's more complicated than some of the old pure class argument. Um, but I think, yes, it is true, probably, that the Germans, to some extent the Russians in principle, might be more likely to draw the sword. But it's, you know, it's by no means clear-cut. I mean, I don't think that's as important, for instance, as the crisis of empire or the whole issue of imperialist geopolitics. Um, I also think one's got to be a bit careful. I mean, in, in 1912-14, to 14, if anyone's pushing anyone, it's the French pushing the Russians, not the other way around, despite the issues coming up being East European. Um, so I think you'd be hard-pressed really to argue that the French, certainly not the French military leadership, even to some extent Poincaré and co, um, they do have their reasons for having a European war sooner rather than later as well, not least because they know that both French domestic politics and longer-term French economic and demographic factors are going to make France relatively weaker with every year that passes relatively weaker both in Europe as a whole and relatively weaker within the Franco-Russian alliance. And I would also add that, yes, I think you can get some way, not so much necessarily with autocracy, but with the actual constitutional structure of, you know, those hybrid systems in Eastern Europe in the sense that they do leave a terrible vacuum at the centre of power and I think the failure really to think hard and coordinate military, diplomatic and naval policy in Germany and then subsequently in Japan in 39 to 41 does have a significant amount to do with 
not just you know militaries and autocracies, but also with the specific nature of these political systems. But I also do think that all the great powers have some responsibility for what happened in 14. Look, I think that's true of the British as well. Um, if there's any logic in the way that Britain acted in 14, you know, they went to war partly over Belgian neutrality, independence, though I think that's more to do with keeping Britain and the Liberal government together than really a fundamental uh, issue. It's above all to protect France's position as an independent great power and thereby to protect Britain's security in Europe and as an empire, uh, an empire which could only survive so long as Britain played a small price for security in Europe. Well, if, that, if those really were the interests and the principles on which Britain was willing to enter a European war, it really would have paid, that, paid to make that clear before 14. The whole essence of being a great power before 14 uh, was to make clear firstly to yourself what were your absolutely essential interests for which you were willing to fight and then to make that clear to all the other great powers, to make it clear that you would fight and that you had the means to do so. The logic of that is a Franco-British military alliance uh, and conscription in Britain and a clear guarantee that two minutes after uh, anybody crossed the Belgian frontier, uh, a massive British army would land in Western Europe. The British mess it up in 14. I think in the July crisis... Sazonov was actually right in believing that the British were the only people who might have changed German opinion. And they mess it up again in 39, which is less forgivable. You know, when Hitler goes to war in 39, I think two British divisions go to France, you know. Um, and those divisions are actually relatively worse than the divisions, the five, which went to France in 14. You can understand Stalin's line. Uh, you know, he believes quite correctly that if Russia joins France and Britain uh, in an alliance against Germany, there's not much doubt who's going to be doing the fighting. The British have two divisions and the French are very cosily installed behind the Maginot Line. Um, you know, if you're going to be a great power, um, then you've got to be a great power. And it has costs. Uh, and I think there are just inherent failings in democracy as a system and in British mentalities. They got away in the 19th century with being a great power on the very, very, very cheap. No conscription, tiny percentage of GNP on defense. Uh, and they thought that could play that, they could play that game in the 20th century when the geopolitics had changed. Um, I'm not necessarily arguing that they should have gone to war in 14. You can argue it both ways. But I think if they'd really fiercely asked themselves... Um, and then on the basis of that made a decision and made it clear, uh, as you might say, things might have been a bit happier. Um, Russian mobilization, I think, look, basically my answer to that is nonsense. Um, I think uh, the Russian archives destroy. In fact, you don't even need the Russian archives to destroy certainly the, what's his name? Um, the Russian origins of the First World War. Um, McMeekin, yes, it's not. Uh, that, genuine, no, that genuinely is nonsense. It, it really is nonsense for tech. Well, it, uh, partly because, I mean, 
partly because actually the German documents themselves say it's nonsense, but I mean much more to the point as well. Uh, and that's the interest of looking at 1912-13 and at Russian military uh, perspectives then. I mean, one of the key issues in 12-13 and therefore in 14 is that the Russians know that if the Austrians and they mobilize with equal speed, then the Austrians have 10 days to two weeks. Uh, big advantage on the Eastern Front. Two, three of the key Russian railheads where key railway lines meet, and you have to remember that the Russians have far fewer railways than the Germans, um, are within 30, 40 kilometers of the Austrian border. Uh, they know that if the Austrians behave intelligently, um, then the Austrians, with a bit of German help, can preempt Russian deployment. And they're terrified that if that happens, of course, if the Russians can't deploy forward for their jumping off positions against Austria, then they also can't deploy forward against East Prussia. The, the whole Russian promise to France collapses because you can't have an open left flank. On top of that, if the Russian deployment cannot occur forward, it has to occur well back. And at that point, all the issue of Austrian invasion and Polish insurrection comes up. Uh, so, you know, I, mean, I, I could go on about this forever, but there were also, you know, the, the argument that somehow Russia is surreptitiously mobilizing, the argument that the period of preliminary um, preparation for war is surreptitious mobilization is absolute rubbish. You, you only have to read what it says. The, the only way you can call up reservists in the Russian military districts is by posting up great red posters on the walls. And the key central military districts, Moscow, Petersburg, Kazan, that means actually posting them up on the walls of cities. No one, you know, believes that that was... Well, it wasn't. It's perfectly obvious. Um, in any event, um, you've got to always remember that what matters isn't... It, what matters in Russian mobilization is the central military districts. Uh, you can't attack Germany until not merely are those districts mobilized, uh, but the units in those districts and the reservists mobilized in those districts are then dispatched to the front. This is a lengthy process. The period pre preliminary to war doesn't allow anyone to be mobilized in an interior district. Uh, and you can't send trains, but you've got reservists to put them in. The whole thing is, not, I mean, frankly, not serious. Um, Risk and contingent. I don't know if any of you have read Chris Coker. I don't know if Chris is around, but um, I think a factor, and that is a rather terrifying one for today. Um, I mean, David might have views on this. I don't know. He knows more than I do about it. Um, is this whole idea of Rietzler's, the, in other words, Bettmann Holweg's sort of um, guru? I know you know. Um, that. The risks of an all-European war are so enormous that our rivals will always draw back, and therefore we can play the game of chicken and risk, um, as you might say, à l'outrance, particularly since there is a very strong understanding, and here there might be some interesting new research to do within the top German leadership, um, that the Russian government is deeply unwilling to go to war. So they think they can push. Um, apply that to... Uh, and actually, it is very interesting that, of course, even Moltke says to the Russian 
military representative at Williams Court that a European war might well mean the death of European civilization for two generations at least. They know the risks. I mean, they're not certainties, they're risks. Um, well, apply that to present geopolitical competition in East Asia, where, of course, the risks of nuclear war are even greater than the destruction of European civilization in 1914. Um, and it does make me I live in East Asia for half the year, and writing a book on the origins of the First War and living in East Asia now is not a pleasant experience. Um, and if any one individual, I think, was responsible for launching the war, it was Theobald Bettmann-Holweg, who was actually a much more decent and humane man than most of the political leaders in contemporary East Asia. Um, and that also worries me. I, I knew his granddaughter once. She said Grandpa was depressed. His wife had just died. And actually, it's not as stupid as it sounds. Um, when you're dealing with decisions, as these decisions always will be, if we are all blown up in a war, we will have no more say in it than some Ukrainian peasant in 1914. Uh, the decisions will be made by a group of people so small that you could count them on the fingers of two hands. At which point biography really matters. I mean, a key calculation in Berlin is that there's going to be a European war, we'll win it now, we won't win it in ten years' time, given the growth of Russian power. Two elements in both those conceptions are deep pessimism. Pessimism about the inevitability of a European war, pessimism about the inexorable growth of Russian power. Both, I think, are wrong. Bettmann-Holweg is the key figure. The military leadership is saying what it's always said, go now. William II swings about, as he always does. Bettmann-Holweg is the key, to, the key swing person. And trying to understand why he said no in the summer of 13 and yes in the summer of 14, in the end, is almost you know, individual biography. Well, I suppose, you know, if your wife or your dog or anyone else dies you're very close to, um, it gives you a gloomy view of the future. You know, it would be awfully sad if the whole human race was exterminated because someone's grandma died. <laughs> Thank you. I, I don't think anything can top her that. We've had quite a few intriguing what-ifs, but I'm not sure that grandma dying is one of them. Uh, I've, I've just got a, a couple of, of notices, really, before we, we thank Chai. The first is that there is a book signing. You may have noticed some books as, as you came in. The books are, are out there, and that's apparently where the signing has to take place, because I presume they want us to get out of uh, this room. The second one is that we have got a, a reception in the senior dining room in the old uh, building. It's not absolutely essential that the, the second one follows the first. Just <laughs> uh, <Tis> for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just sort of put that to you. Uh, but apart from that, we'd just like to thank Chai very, very much for an extraordinarily wide-ranging Thank you very much. Thank you.